um, all-sufficient merit song. I haven't heard that before. But that, if I lose my voice here, it's because of that song. It's your fault for making me sing that one, all right? Okay. So, uh, it's the first Sunday in December now, which does mean we're getting close to Christmas, doesn't it? And so, of course, that means it's time for, for present lists and uh, braving the traffic, time with family, all that sort of thing. Uh, presents and food, which is exciting. Good things. Uh, stuff. Stuff is good. Okay, presents are good. God made them for us to enjoy uh, and to love each other with, to give as gifts and to be thankful to Him too. Um, I've been teaching my kids their whole lives, actually. If they want something, anything at all, they can ask God for it. So if they want a, a Lamborghini, <laughs> they can ask. Mum and Dad can't give it to you, okay? You can ask God. He's the one who can give it to you. But also God's good and wise, much more than Mum and Dad. So he'll only give you something if that's what's best for you. So my littlest boy, who's, who's five, he, for about a month, he would reliably pray to God He'd finish his prayer time saying, and God, please make me the strongest person in the whole world, unless that wouldn't be good for me. And then he'd pop his two little fingers in his mouth and go to sleep. Okay? It was very cute. Uh, God's the one who gives us everything. So James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is the true Father Christmas, really. And so those gifts that we give and receive are actually from God, truly. Even so, stuff, we know this, stuff isn't the point of Christmas, stuff. But I think the danger for us here on the Central Coast isn't thinking that it's about the presents. Our danger is actually thinking that Christmas is about family. That's the risk for us. Uh, presents and, fa- and, and uh, food are just a way for us to enjoy family, really, as our excuse. But family isn't the point of Christmas. It's not family is it? So what I want to do with you this morning is just to, to help you keep appreciating the glory of Christmas being about Christ. That's what I want to do. I don't want to take away your presents from you. I don't want to take away your family <laughs> or stop you from enjoying them. Um, you know that, that moment that will happen uh, on Christmas Day where you've, you've eaten so much that you actually can't eat anymore, and then about two minutes later you'll move from being 100% full to 99.9% full. Something's shifted around or whatever. And you'll reach for that chocolate sultana. And as you're reaching, someone will... Ah, 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 not another one. I'm not going to do that with you with family and gifts and presents. I'm not saying, ah, 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 it's about Jesus. You shouldn't enjoy those things. Stuff is great. Uh, But what I want to do is load you up at that moment with a big present on your lap so that you're distracted and you're not so worried about those other things, Uh, I want you to realise you're not missing out on anything. I want you to see, again, the great gift that Christ is at Christmas time. And that'll actually help us all the more to enjoy things like family and toys and food in their right place as gifts from Him. Just like like stuff is good, but it's even better when it comes from someone who means something to you. Uh, The same thing with understanding uh, all the things we'll enjoy about Christmas. Uh, understanding it's from Christ. So I want to do that with Christ, not to take away the gifts, but I want to give you the upgrade for Christmas again. Um, the, the problem for us is that Christ is a, is a bit of a mystery because he's, like, he's not like the Christmas ham that you can poke and touch and prod and figure out. 
And unlike family, we can't ask him the questions face to face. He's a bit mysterious for us. And so I want to actually come at this from a bit of a different angle. I want to start by talking about angels. Because angels seem to pop up everywhere at Christmas time. Uh, I've actually, though, been seeing a lot of really strange angels around. I don't know if you've been seeing this in the, in the shop windows. They're really weird ones. They've been freaking me out. I don't know if you've seen them. I've got a, I've got a picture. Let's see if these work. All right. Where do I point this? There. There. Here you go. Look at these freaky angels. <laughs> these things have been psyching me out all over, all over town. And the reason that they're so weird to me is that when you actually read the accounts of angels in the Bible, do you, do you remember what always happens when you read the accounts of angels in the Bible? What's the first thing they always have to say? Don't be afraid. Okay? <laughs> Don't be afraid. Uh, they're cute. So what's going on? What I want to do, though, is show you some of these Bible accounts just quickly in a few different places. And Luke 1 is a really good example. Do I just say to you, next slide, instead of clicking this? Or? Oh, there we go. Here's the first bit of Luke 1. Great. Here's the first little, little spot. Five different places about angels. This is just before Jesus was born. The angel appeared to Zechariah and said to him, don't be afraid. Now, Zechariah, he's an old priest, and it was a special angel, an angel of the Lord. So maybe he was just afraid because he's an old priest and it was a special angel. Uh, but it is hard to imagine those cute angels, even in that situation, needing to say, don't be afraid. Uh, just a little bit later in Luke 1, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary uh, when she was just a teenager. And he says to her, greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting it might be. And the angel said to her, don't be afraid. Now, again, it could just be the, the old priests and the teenage girls that are afraid of angels. But the next chapter, Luke 2, shows us that it's the farmers as well. You see the angels speaking to the shepherds here. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. And they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not. So the shepherds themselves, they needed to be comforted as well. And see what happens next down in verse 13. Suddenly, there was an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Now, when you're thinking family Christmas time and hosts, you're thinking about who's doing the meal planning, who's making the beds, that sort of thing. But the word means army. That's what a host is. A host is an army. This is a multitude of the heavenly army. Angels are enlisted. They're often delivering important messages, messages about peace, or the news of the resurrection of the king in Matthew 28. This is where Mary Magdalene went to visit Jesus' tomb, and an, an angel caused this massive earthquake, and then uh, an angel uh, of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women... Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. You see the description of the angels there. It's not chubby cheeks and cute little baby angels. He rolls back this massive stone using an earthquake 
and the soldiers guarding the tomb pass out as if dead. Okay? The women are still afraid even after he's told them that he comes in peace. Down in verse 8 there, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy to go and tell the disciples. Last one from Acts 10 now. Uh, this is about Cornelius. Uh, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? So this guy Cornelius, he's no wuss. He's not an accountant or an engineer or a pastor or someone like that. He's a centurion. He would have had a hundred professional heavy infantrymen, legionnaires under his command. This is a guy who knows about armies. He, he stared at this angel in terror. See, the angels of popular culture, have you ever stared at one of them in terror? Can you imagine a group of them being called an army? Well, real angels, they are equipped to deliver important messages to achieve the purposes of God. They're not cherubs. In fact, angels were so powerful that around the, the year 700 BC, when Sennacherib was king of Assyria, God sent a single army to defeat his, uh, a single angel to defeat his army. This angel basically is an army of its own. So that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. If he had an eight-hour window overnight, that's over six soldiers killed every second if he didn't take smoko. Okay? Like he is working hard. Angels are a big deal. Angel toys and decorations, uh, they come out en masse at Christmas time because they're part of the history of Christmas. Absolutely. But because they're actually powerful and terrifying, people developed this habit of worshipping them. And that's quite natural, I can imagine. If they're scary, you want to be on their good side, so you work out what to do. But they're also mystical and confusing. So angel worship was a real issue back in those first centuries after Christ. In fact, even the people who had seen Jesus and seen him risen from the dead needed help to learn not to worship angels. So this is John. Uh, in Revelation 19, the apostle, the angel tells him some good news, and he said, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. It's a very human thing to be drawn to worship the supernatural angels. But they know, and we should, that we shouldn't worship them. We should only worship God. Nowadays, people still have all kinds of superstitious ideas about angels. Uh, some people pray to angels. Some people have pictures of angels in their home and not just at Christmas time. Some people just really love angels. But the problem is that just like stuff and family, angels can get in the way of what Christmas is really about. It's, it's such a problem that, that one book of the Bible was written to deal with it. Uh, the book of Hebrews that we've just had read out, especially the first chapter or two. And the way that God fixes people's problems with angels, it's not by saying that angels are bad, but by showing us that Christ is so much more impressive. Um, it's a bit of a, if you thought angels were good, wait till you see Christ sort of approach. 
Remember, I'm not snatching the Christmas food away from you. I'm not giving you a little slap on the wrist. I'm showing you that Christ is more glorious than the, so that you'd be satisfied by him. And you can enjoy those things rightly as gifts from Christ. So what I want to do with you now, I want to get you to imagine little baby Jesus. Now, you've got to imagine going back in time because he's not a little baby anymore at all. But imagine looking at the little baby in the manger wrapped up in cloths. And what I want to do is just unwrap these cloths, just one layer at a time, just a little bit at first and a little bit more and then a little bit more. I want to go a little bit deeper each time. And I want to start by looking at something that a five-year-old could understand. Let's figure that out first. What could a five-year-old understand about Jesus? And then we'll unwrap another layer. What could a 20-year-old understand? Oops, that's a big layer there. Oh, well. Uh, and some of the five-year-old kind of kids around here, you guys might be, able, might be as smart as the 20-year-olds here anyway, so you might be able to keep up with that as well. Um, and then, well, I'm almost 40. I'll be 40 next year. So I'll give you all I've got and give you what a 40-year-old can understand. Um, and so open up Hebrews once again. Uh, I've got mine printed in here. Open up Hebrews 1 once again and keep it open. You guys are Coast Bible Church, so I know you'll, you'll be all over this. Um, so while you're, while you're flipping there, when you're five, I think you feel like 40-year-olds know everything. Um, when you're 20, you feel like you know more than the 40-year-olds. And when you're 40, you realise that 20-year-olds have so much potential. So much potential. And so uh, flip over to Hebrews 1. Um, doing this kind of thing with Jesus is a big deal. And as we're heading into Christmas, it's worth taking time to reflect on who Christ is, not just today, but over the month, to think deeply, uh, especially if you're brand new to the things of Christ. If you're, you're visiting and you're new to Christian things, can I say, if you can figure Jesus out, actually that's a, that's a bit of a high bar there, to figure Jesus out, if you can start to understand just a little bit of the magnitude of Christ, the day that happens will turn your life upside down completely. Uh, you'll realise that all of reality was fundamentally different to what you'd thought your whole life. The gravity of understanding Christ is incomparable. So whether you've been in church for your whole life, if you've been in church for your whole life, whether that's five years, 80 years, there's nothing better to do than spend your time marvelling at Christ, which you know, and so let's do that, and we'll start unwrapping the gift, and we'll start first with the, the layer for five-year-olds. Uh, so the first layer of knowing Jesus is that he's the king, God's son. See it there in Hebrews 1, just the first verse and a half. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is God's son, and that means he is the heir of all things. Everything God owns, the son owns. You can see it from um, verse 3, halfway through verse 3 as well. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Sitting at God's right hand is a special privilege. It's just for God's Son. All of God's authority and power the Son has, which means he's superior to angels. God owns the angels and the Son is the heir of everything, so he owns the angels as well. He sits above the angels at God's right hand. Just like sons inherit their dad's names, their last names, this son has inherited the highest name from God. 
This really is where the comparison with angels starts. Look at verse 5, where he starts to explain how superior the Son is to the angels. Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Those two quotes are from the Old Testament, and they're about Israel's kings. The first one's from Psalm 2. It's a song about God treating uh, the king as his own son. And the same for the second one, uh, 2 Samuel 7, where God promised that uh, Israel's greatest king, David, that his descendants would be his sons. Okay? Uh, that's what God's promised back there in the Old Testament. Jesus is better than the angels because he's God's king, God's son. His throne is above the angels and he rules over them. Look right down at the end of the chapter in verses 13 and 14. Uh, from verse 13 there, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make an enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? See, Christ is so much better than the angels because he's the king, he's God's son. It's such a, a normal thing for us to think about um, family resemblance, like father, like son. That's a, a normal thing for us. In my family, I've got two sons and a daughter. And funnily enough, my daughter is probably the one that I have the most obvious similarities with. Now, she loves to point out to me that she can eat anything just like I can, any amount of anything as well. Um, she says because she's got a belly just like mine. Thanks, that's great. Uh, if mum gets a whiff of deep-fried chips, she'll start to feel a bit nauseous, and the boys are similar. Uh, but Hazel and I could, re could eat forever. What a great thing to inherit from your dad. <laughs> uh, this son, though, in Hebrews, is like his dad in a different way to that. He doesn't have his dad's belly. He has his dad's authority. God is the boss, so the son is the boss. God rules everything like a king, and so the son rules everything as the king. Imagine if I made a little Lego world for my kids. I could make a little Lego world and, and set it up however I want, with cities and farms and the Lego people that I put in there. Because I made it, I'm the boss. I get to decide. And then I could get one of my kids and I could say, this is your world. I made it for you. And this little, this little man here, that's you. He's the king. You go put him on the throne. You go boss those angels around or whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, it would all be his. Jesus' relationship to God and to the world is like that. He's God's son, so he's king over everything. The heir of all things at the right hand of the majesty on high, superior to the angels because of his name. The angels are just servants for our sake. So how do you treat a king, a real king? Well, obviously, obedience is one of the ways you should treat a king. And if he's a good king, you treat him with obedience and trust as well. But Jesus is God's king. And so, obey him with everything you have. You can trust him absolutely. You really can trust Jesus. Whether you're five or 105, he's strong, he is good, he always does what is right. You can pray to him about everything. He's the king who loves you. If you can grasp as an adult what a five-year-old can grasp about King Jesus, it will completely change your life. 
Okay, are you ready to unwrap another layer now? Is there anything I need to clarify before we go a layer deeper? Great. So we're about to go 15 years deeper. I know the 80-year-olds are saying it's just scratching the surface, 15 years. But um, all right, second layer. The second layer of knowing Jesus is that he is God himself. Jesus is God himself. Not a God, but the God, God himself. See it there in Hebrews 1, down uh, from verses 6 to 9. This is a, a quick-fire triple quote um, of Old Testament passages. So from verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So why these three quotes? What's the argument? What's the point? The first one there in verse 6 is it's not there to lower our view of the angels. Remember, these guys are struggling with angel worship, but it's actually there to raise our view of the angels. Uh, that's a quote of Deuteronomy 32, and it's actually the angels being called to worship the nation of Israel. Okay? Before they even had a king, Israel were described as God's adopted son. You remember the battle that he had with Pharaoh about sons? Uh, and because angels served God... Angels should serve and worship God's Son, Israel. But Hebrews is telling us that that was actually about the angels worshipping Christ. Back then in the Old Testament, when God rescued his people out of Egypt, he called the angels to worship Christ. That's what Hebrews says. Wow. The second quote in verse 7, it gives you an amazing description of angels. They're fast like the wind. They're powerful like fire, God's servants. And then you contrast that with verses 8 and 9 and the quote from Psalm 45, which we read out, a psalm that explicitly calls Israel's king, it calls him God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your king. God, your God, has anointed you. Jesus is not merely a human king. He's not merely God's adopted son, like the nation of Israel. Jesus is God's true son. He's God himself. Come back up to the start of Hebrews 1, uh, to actually to verses 2 and 3, right near the end of verse 2, that you've got the son through whom he also created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So much that we can't unpack there. But a, a human king, a human king could rule everything that God gave him. You know, Adam and Eve were created to rule, uh, rule the earth, for sure. Uh, but God didn't create the world through a human king. Jesus here, he gets called the radiance of the glory of God. What does that mean? Um, it's like, like you think of a light bulb, right? And we're very comfortable with calling the light bulb 
and the light that comes out of the light bulb, we call them both the light. That's a very natural thing for us to do language-wise. Turn on the lights means turn on the light bulbs and turn on the lights that come out. Uh, when we say that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, we're not saying he's different to God, we're actually saying that he is God. Just like in our solar system, the sun and the light that comes from the sun, we speak about them as one. We don't normally say, ow, those lights that are coming from the sun are burning me. We just say, the sun's burning me. Uh, it, we think of them as one. Well, even more closely related is God and his son. Um, God's son is the radiance of God's glory. Glory is already a word like radiance. Basically means the same thing, brightness. Jesus isn't just the visible bit of God. He's God's visible bit's visible bit. Okay? He, he's God's radiance's radiance. Okay? He's, the, he's the glory of God's glory. God's goodness, his power, his excellence, his authority. Jesus is the creator of the world. And he's also the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. We do not have time to go into it. It's saying the same thing again in another cool way. But see there how the sun upholds the universe by the word of his power. I thought God held the universe up by his word. Exactly. He does. And Jesus is God himself, holding up the universe by his word. This is no ordinary king. Okay? He is worshipped by angels. He is called God. He is God. He is not just a little bit better than the angels, is he? So how do you treat God then? How do you treat God? Well, it's worship, isn't it? A king you obey and trust. A merely human king, you give conditional obedience and conditional trust to them unless they give you bad commands and you trust them as much as they actually deserve it. But when that king is God, you obey him unconditionally. Trust him unconditionally. It's called worship. He made you, gives life. Don't worship angels. They worship Jesus. So follow their example and worship Jesus as God himself. Now, this is why I think the whole world, by and large, celebrates Christmas. Even though they don't know how or why, God has made Jesus dominate the calendar. On December 26th, right, the day right after Christmas, the Easter buns are going to come out straight away. They'll come out, in most people's minds, for materialistic reasons. But you know better. God rules the world and he makes Jesus' enemies, even his enemies, his servants to display his glory in the world. He owns the calendar, he owns the universe, of course he owns the angels. All right, are you guys ready for the last layer that we have to get to? Anything I need to clarify? Good, good, good. Now, this is just our last layer for today. Jesus is God, so you do know there are infinite more layers, right? The, the majesty of his person has no limits. Uh, we're only going 20 years deeper. We've got an eternity ahead to keep wondering at him and marvelling at him. So, uh, yeah. And, and just as an aside, when you're 20, you've been thinking as an adult for two years now. When you're 40, which will be me next year, you've been thinking as an adult for 22 years. That's 11 times as long. So technically, I should be next year 22 times as smart, as a if only that were true. 
All right. The third layer here is realizing that Jesus is the Lord. There we go. Jesus is the eternal Lord God Almighty. I want to show it to you with something strange about verses 10 to 12. I think I've got this on a slide. Okay. Yeah, verse 10. Have a look at verse 10. You might have it there as well if it's easier for you. It's just a single Old Testament quote. Uh, And you, Lord, this is another thing that's said to the Son, and you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Okay. So what makes this deeper than, go, than earlier? Because we've already seen that Jesus is the king, he's God's son, uh, and we've seen that Jesus is God himself. How does this quote take us a step deeper? Well, this is a, a quote of Psalm 102. And the big question for Psalm 102 is, who is the you in Psalm 102? Uh, clickety click. Here we go. You might like to flick there if you can't see that. But when Hebrews quotes Psalm 102, it's written to the Lord. Uh, Back in Hebrews, and you, Lord, laid the foundation. But in Psalm 102, when you look at this, I just want you to notice that the word Lord here is written in what's called small caps. Small caps is where every letter is in uppercase, but the letters that shouldn't be uppercase are small uppercase. So you've got a big capital L, a small capital O, a small capital R, a small capital D. Now, your Bibles will have small caps, Lord, only in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Because that word is translating God's personal name. We don't really know how it's meant to be pronounced. It might be something like Jehovah or Yahweh. They use similar uh, consonants in them. But all you need to know is that the Lord, in small caps, is God's personal name from Exodus 3. And it's only written like that in the Old Testament. So look at, look at Psalm 102, verse 1. Uh, Hear my prayer, O Lord. God's personal name, small caps, Yahweh. Uh, verse 12. But you, O Yahweh, are enthroned forever. Verses 15 and 16. Nations will fear the name of Yahweh, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory, for Yahweh builds up Zion. Verse 18, let this be recorded for a generation to come so that people yet to be created may praise Yahweh. Verse 19, from heaven Yahweh looked at the earth. Verses 21-22, may they declare the name of Yahweh and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship Yahweh. Verse 24 is the first time that he addresses God as anything other than Yahweh in the whole psalm. Oh, God, oh my God, he says, my God, don't take me, uh, my life away. And then it's in uh, verse 25, 27, down the end there, that Hebrews 1 quotes. So who is the you in Psalm 102? Psalm 102 says it's Yahweh. This is the God of the nation of Israel, the Lord of the Old Testament. But Hebrews 1 says it's Jesus. Hebrews 1 says that it's Jesus. Of the Son, he says, 
Your, you, the Lord, laid the foundation of the earth. Your years will have no end. I'll just pause here and uh, just reflect on how significant this is. Jesus is God's son, the king. In fact, he is God himself. But most significantly, Jesus is the only God that there is. He is the Lord. He is Yahweh. The Lord of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The Lord of Moses and David and the prophets. The Lord who made the world from nothing and upholds it by his very word. Put this into the context of angel worship. How has Hebrews argued that Jesus is superior to angels? It wasn't by saying that the angels were just cute little babies, Christmas tree decorations, no big deal. No, the angels are. They're God's angels. They're his servants, fast as the wind and flames of fire. Christ isn't better than the angels because they're nothing special. Christ is better than the angels because there is none greater than him. He is the Lord of the Old and New Testaments. Sometimes we think of the Father, God the Father, as the God of the Old Testament, and then Jesus comes along and he heads off and Pentecost happens and the Spirit comes along. But Jesus, we know Jesus has always been there as the Eternal Son, but we often read the Lord or God through the Bible and we think it doesn't mean Son, it only means the Father. But Jesus is the highest one. Along with the Father and the Spirit, of course, they are the same single God. That's why Jesus claimed in in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. I am is just another way of Jesus saying, I am the God. I don't depend on anything else for my existence. I just am. I'm the Lord Yahweh. Jesus' lordship is also why Philippians 2 says that his name is above every name in heaven and on earth. God the Father is no greater than God the Son. The the Son is the same eternal one as God the Father. God the Lord Almighty. There's no other God. Jesus of Nazareth, who some people think was a, a good, confused man with a few good proverbs, those people who think that about him Their ongoing existence, every moment of every day, depends on his free decision to keep them existing, sustaining them by his word. The one who made all things, the Lord of the Testaments, he died on a cross to pay for our sins. In fact, as he was being held up by the cross, just ponder this for us, as he's being held up by the cross... Right? He was simultaneously willing the cross to exist. The atoms in the nails maintained their integrity as metal, as iron or whatever they are. Jesus was doing that. He was deciding to make that happen. Jesus held himself on that cross. He keeps the whole of creation from simply ceasing to exist. He's sustaining us right now. Those three layers, he's the king, God's son, he's God himself, and he is the Lord. You see why they're they're three layers? They're not three different things. It's not like I've said, you know, he was this tall and he had a beard and he had brown hair. Three independent facts. No, I've given you one fact 
at three different levels there. We can appreciate Christ at different levels, which is actually a bit of a taste of heaven. There are infinitely more levels to go deeper. And the beautiful thing is that each layer down, it's just more good, more loving, more awesome. There's no point where you dig up something nasty, a little surprise there that you didn't like, that wasn't good. Can I just finish by pointing out three implications for you? The first one is that he is worthy of hard work. No moment of your life is wasted when it's spent getting to know Christ more deeply. Uh, It's worth planning out ways to keep chipping away at knowing Christ more. I, I understand I've got an unfair advantage in this because my job requires that I keep reading, learning, growing. My boss demands it of me. Put that in your calendar, do it. Yours probably doesn't. Maybe some of you, that you do. But it's still hard work. Good learning means sitting down at a desk with a book open, with a Bible open, taking notes, thinking. It won't put calluses on your hands, that's right, absolutely, but it will put muscle on your heart and it will teach you how to kneel to the King Jesus. Spend your life finding ways to read about Christ, reading, paying attention to the Scriptures, That'll be a key way that you grow. Remember, Jesus is called the Word. If you're not a good reader, get into audiobooks. Read with your ears, okay? And everyone, do this in community, in conversation with one another. The church is this beautiful blessing to help us know Christ more. If you need ideas of what to read next, ask people around you who are readers. They'll have something to recommend. Read that, come back, I read that, I liked it, I'd like something different, I'd like more of the same. Work your way through something and keep going. Um, I've been recommending a book called Knowing Christ to people recently by a guy named Mark Jones. It's really good. The chapters are like two or three pages long each. You just chip away at them. Short chapters uh, and it'll help you to know Christ, which you'd hope so with the title Knowing Christ. Uh, Use your December especially to try and go one layer deeper wherever you're up to. You don't need to go from zero to 100 this month. Just do something that you haven't done before to go deeper. Uh, It could be that you really want to pay attention to the words of the carols that you hear, the classic carols, and then work out which bits of the Bible is this from? What what do they mean? Most of them are really, really good. Pay attention to that. Uh, It could be that you want to read through one of the Gospels in December. Grab Luke's Gospel, just do a chapter each day, start to finish, and really notice in Luke's Gospel the role of the Spirit and his relationship with the Son in not just uh, making Mary pregnant, but all through his ministry. It's amazing. Or jump into John's Gospel and see what it means that the Father and the Son are one. Wow. Do that through December. Uh, Maybe buying a new kid's Bible is your best option. Read the same stories again with your kids, or on your own, but with different pictures, different explanations. It is a good idea to own multiple good kid's Bibles, so you can keep coming at those stories. Get ideas from other people about how they've used uh, the lead-up to Christmas in the past to learn more about Christ. What are they going to do this year? What have they done in the past? Trade ideas, trade wisdom. He's worthy of the hard work. Second implication is that the coast needs to know him. The two big motives for sharing the gospel with our neighbours are love for our neighbours and love for God. We want our neighbours to know the gospel so they'll be saved from hell 
And so they'll have the multifaceted blessing of salvation. His cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his session at God's right hand, his return where salvation is achieved. But also the blessings of salvation applied to us. The second birth and justification, adoption, sanctification, our own glorious resurrections and the new creation. We want our neighbours to know all of that as theirs. So love for your neighbours drives you to invite them to church, introduce them to other Christians and share the gospel with them. Jesus is on the throne at God's right hand. He will sit there until God makes his enemies a stool for his feet. Our neighbours need to know. And it doesn't matter if they're really sincere, devout religious people. If they don't worship Christ, then they're really sincere, devout, religiously wrong and evil. It's offensive to the king of the host of heaven. So our neighbours are in great danger. That's one big motive. But the other one is love for God. As the coast continues to rebel against Christ, as every place has in every world, in every uh, age of time, uh, as, the, as we go about our lives, lives that he is upholding by his very word, and they teach their children to ignore Jesus. No one's born an atheist. It takes a lot of sustained effort to train and convince someone made in God's image that God doesn't exist. They, they, the people uh, will show great dishonour to Jesus and they don't even realise what he's done for them. And we do. It should pull on your heart that he is not honoured in the way that he ought to be. Don't you long that your Lord would be worshipped by every family on your street, by everyone you work with, all your mates, your family, not only for their sake, but because we've been forgiven so much we love our Lord and we want him to be respected, honoured and worshipped. Let both of those motives drive you. Pray desperately for the people you already love, for their sake, but also pray in a disciplined way for those who hate Christ, even those to whom your heart is not as warm to yet. Do that for his sake. Pray for them for Christ's sake and try to find ways to honour Christ in calling them gently, tenderly, to bow the knee to the king. Last implication here. I'm sort of just circling back around to the theology of Hebrews 1 again. Third one is, for Jesus, becoming human was humbling. Have you realised that? You know, whatever you worship, you're saying that it's greater than you. That's sort of what worship is. If you worship money, you'll value money over human life. If you worship pleasure... Uh, you'll use people for your own kicks. If you worship cows, you're saying that they are greater than you. If you worship a sports star or a politician, you're saying they're greater than you. Uh, it's, it's very Australian to admit that maybe, possibly, a professional athlete might be better than me at sport, um, but the politicians worshipping them is a bit much. Because worship, is a, it's a deliberate self-lowering. That's what you do in worship. But to worship Christ is simply to fall in step with reality. It's to open your eyes and truly to wake up and love what is good. Just wrestle with this though. When Jesus became human, which is celebrated by his enemies and allies all over the world, when Jesus became the greatest human to ever live, the human who sits at God's right hand, the king who's the heir of everything, 
the most glorious human who will ever live, to rule all things with the name that is above every other name. That act of being placed above all created things, that was him humbling himself. He lowered himself into the highest place. That was condescension for him. It was unfathomable. And there was only one reason he did it. Love. The only reason Jesus humiliated himself by becoming human... Have you, have you realised how similar the words humble and humiliate and human are? Okay. For the rest of all eternity, he will be one of us. He has lowered himself to be the pinnacle of mankind because of love to save us. Worship him. The most glorious thing you can do with your life is to worship him, to realise that you are so far beneath him, but he came to save you. Worship him. Let's pray now. Lord Jesus, we worship you. You are the King, you are God's Son, you are God, you are Yahweh, the Lord of the Testaments, the only God. We praise you, you are higher than we can fathom and you have been so gracious to us to deal with our sin and make it possible for us to know you more and more for year after year after millennia after millennia. We pray that our region would know you out of your great grace. In your name we pray. Amen.